it's been a it's been a tough week actually for for me. Most of you know that my my brother-in-law has been wrestling with cancer uh, since September of 2017, and uh, and this week they made the decision on Wednesday for him to enter into hospice care, which was a big shift and a big transition in. You know, it feels like monumental in so many ways. And so I've cried a lot at the end of the week trying to write a sermon. And, um, yeah, just feel that I come here to you today in a different space than I normally am. I wanted to read a couple words from my sister, who's a bit of a prophet herself um, and a testifier to the goodness of God in the midst of... This is my sister's husband. He had his 49th birthday on March 14th. They have five children, a junior in college down to an eighth grader. And, uh, and it's been really tough. And I know many of you have walked through, maybe walking through things like this right now. Um, so I just wanted to start here. My sister wrote on Caring Bridge, Brant, Brand, that's my brother-in-law's name, is slowly but surely, uh, I hope I can make it through, um, slowly but surely, surely turning his head from the worries of this world to his eternal hope. Psalm 73, 26 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We know that to be as true today as it's ever been. We plan to cheerlead Brant to the finish line, thankful that the heartache and agony of this life is not all there is, that living in a diseased diseased body is not the final word on his life. What a race he has run, what a privilege it has been to have a front row seat. I finally decided to ask for help with meals as I'd like the freedom to just sit vigil with my dear husband and savor whatever time we have left together. He sleeps most of the time now, but he's still here. Um, when we confront death, we, we have to ask ourselves, where is our hope? And um, she went on to finish that by saying she's blasting out loud Bethel's song, King of My Heart. And I wrote her back and said, you know, that's on the list. I didn't choose that song today, but it's on the list for us to sing here today. Um, and that refrain that you're never going to let me go or let me down... Um, in the midst of turmoil and trial and struggle, and all of us face it, and all of us will face it, all of us are confronting death at one place or another in our lives. We will in our own lives personally. There's just this real question, so where are we going to put our hope? What are we going to rest in? What is there to hold on to? Um, And I'm thankful for the witness of people like my brother-in-law and others who have, like Jeff Quinn in our community years ago, who have Embrace this road of suffering and done so without getting bitter or hard, but with an open, an open heart to the Lord and to his grace, with a continued conviction in the midst of a world of trial and tears to say that God is good and that we will praise him, that we will trust in him. Um, as we finish up the book of Micah today, we get to ask this, there's a, such a great question at the end of the book, and that's what we're going to focus on. And it connects in many ways to where my brother-in-law is, it connects to where all of us are um, just realizing what is our hope? What do, we, what do we have to celebrate? What do we have to turn to? In the last three verses, if you've got your Bible and you want to open up to Micah 7, that'd be great. The last three verses of this passage, of this book, of this prophet's ministry, end with an oracle of praise. It's a fitting place to end. It's where the Bible continually turns us to praise him, to exalt him, to magnify him. And the question that the that this last oracle begins with, is who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? I mentioned in the first sermon in this series that the name Micah means who is like Yahweh. 
So there's this beautiful and fitting way, no doubt, not an accident, that Micah, whose name means God, Yahweh, Israel's God, is incomparable. There's nobody like him. Ends with this oracle asking that same question, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you? So we get to to study this morning his answer to that question or why he says this. There's obviously so many places you can turn to talk about the incomparability of God. You could talk about his power. He speaks and things come into being. His knowledge, he knows everything that there is to know. His wisdom, he understands how the world works and how the different parts of his beautiful creation are meant to fit together and create a beautiful song of praise to him. We could talk about the fact that he's eternal, that he has no beginning and no end. But I find that where Micah focuses our attention at the end of his book uh, is surprising, perhaps, but so deeply encouraging. Encouraging to me in this moment with my family as we prepare to say goodbye to somebody that we love at an age that's far too young. But pertinent and encouraging, I think, for all of us, wherever we find ourselves today in the midst of this world. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to focus in on this question. Who is a God like you? Verse 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in hesed or steadfast love. All these places we could turn, all these different attributes about God that we could talk about, what is it that Micah comes back to? It's this unbelievable character of a God, a creator God, a covenant God, a God who longs to know his people and bless his world, a God who forgives sinners. He says it in two ways in this passage, in, in just in verse 18. He pardons iniquity, or could be translated, he takes away guilt, which means that he forgives completely, taking away both the guilt and the punishment. There's this beautiful line in Psalm 103 when the psalmist says, you know, he separates our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. It's amazing. This complete and total forgiveness that God offers. And the second way he says it reinforces the first is he states that God passes over transgression. Transgressions are these violations of the covenant relationship that we've looked at already in this book, this defining relationship between Yahweh and his people, which obligates both parties to certain things. And clearly Israel, throughout the book of Micah, we read of their failure to uphold their obligation, to do justice, to love hesed or mercy, kindness, and to walk humbly with our God, as we looked at in our third message. They've transgressed, they've They've broken the relationship. They've rejected and rebelled against God's authority in their lives. And God should meet these things with justly with judgment. And he does to a degree. But instead, because of his love, we read here, Micah says that he will pass over these transgressions for the repentant remnant of his people. And then it says in verse 18 as well, this, this section that kind of says it in a negative way. It says, God won't retain his anger forever. This righteous response to human rebellion. And then Micah writes, because he delights in steadfast love. He delights in hesed. This 
showing grace and mercy and forgiveness and a commitment and a kindness to his people. This is what he delights in. You know, think about things that you might delight in. Maybe it's your spouse or your children or good exercise or getting out on a boat on a summer day or a good book or sitting down for what you know is going to be a thought-provoking and an entertaining movie or a delicious meal or being out in God's beautiful creation on a hike. And think about the pleasure and the joy that you derive from those things in your life. It's deep, restful. And that's what this text is saying, that God, the very God of the universe, the God of creation, is a God who delights. He takes pleasure in his committed, faithful, generous love being expressed. That's what brings him pleasure and joy. The righteous anger is a part of his character. It's a necessary part of his justice and his perfections. But the weightier side of who God is, of his character, that which outweighs his justice in a sense, is this committed, faithful love to bless. And how will that blessing come about? It's coming about through the act of forgiveness. Through the forgiveness of sin. This passage repeatedly alludes back to Exodus 32 to 34, which is a story most of you will be familiar with about the golden calf. When Israel sins against this God who has just rescued them from Egypt miraculously, and God reveals his character to Moses, he reveals his name to Moses in Exodus 34, and he says, I am Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no means, by, uh, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Slow to anger, he says, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. At the very beginning of the story, when he'd rescued his people and they'd rebelled against him really quickly, God says, look, I am a God of forgiveness. That's what defines my character and my nature. I'm a God whose character is weighed over by my commitment to you, this hesed commitment of faithfulness and generosity, and that will mark me. Yes, I will not turn a blind eye to the guilty, and we've seen that in the book of Micah, the necessity of God's purifying and cleansing judgment that falls upon the unrepentant. But there is more to Micah as the prophet's ministry. There's more to this biblical story, and it centers on the reality of a God who forgives. So that's verse 18. He forgives. Verse 19, if you'll look with me. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. What does that bring to mind? Casting things into the depths of the sea. This is hearkening back to the first act of rescue and redemption. And comparing and personifying now sin and transgression and evil as Pharaoh and his troops, whom God in his great rescue of Israel cast into the sea. And now what we find is this vision of Micah about forgiveness, this idea that God would pass over transgressions, that he'd wipe away or um, pardon our iniquity, take away our guilt, is this idea that he will destroy our sin. He will defeat Sin as a power in the world, and he will cast it into the sea. Do you, this is, do you remember um, in that story when they're coming out of Egypt? They're scared to death because Pharaoh, I mean, this is like the superpower of the world. And they're this 
you know, puny little people who don't have much and are running from them, and, and suddenly they see the dust stirring up in the distance, and it's Pharaoh and his, his armies, you know, his B-1 bombers coming right at them. This is the greatest technology of the day, coming at them to destroy them. And they're freaking out, and, and through Moses, God speaks to his people, and he says, you only need to be still. The Lord will fight for you. And in the song that Moses sings to celebrate this occasion in Exodus 15, the same question that we find at the end of Micah is found in Micah's name, is found in that song. It's one of the only other places in Scripture that it's found. Who is a God like you? A God who rescues and delivers. Our great enemy, of course, is sin. And Micah seems to know that the first deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, defeating the armies of Pharaoh, was only a sign towards something greater. That one day the great enemy that destroys life, that kills liberation and freedom, that destroys communities, that destroys hearts, that destroys marriages and families, that that power would be decisively defeated and thrown out. come back to that in a moment. The third thing in, in verse 20, you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love, has said to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Micah says, you're, you're going to be forgiven. God is going to take away your guilt. He's going to deal with your iniquities. He says, this God is going to defeat your sin and iniquity. That power is going to be destroyed and cast into the sea. It's going to be decisively removed, never to have a sway in your life again, to be a vanquished power. And then he says, all of this is happening. Why is this happening? Because of God's word. Did you catch that? I love that Micah's book, a, a book about the word, and we've called this series God's Word of Life. Micah, God's word of life. Because God's word is spoken long ago in days of old. God said to Abraham, I am going to be your God. And you and your descendants are going to be my people. And I'm going to bless you. And through you and your descendants, which will number as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, through you and your descendants, I'm going to bless all the nations. Do you recognize what a word of life that was into the midst of a world of death? where sin had been destroying human community all the way to the Tower of Babel. And then God speaks in this, this climactic way in Genesis 12 out of nowhere and says, my commitment, my commitment is to bless you. And then if you fast forward to chapter 15, what happens? God makes a covenant with Abraham. And what happens in the making of that covenant in Genesis 15 is that God causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. After Abraham has sliced up a few animals and cut them in half, and a couple dead birds, and laid them on the ground, because covenantal parties in the ancient Near Eastern covenant-making world were going to walk between these pieces of animals to say, so be it to me if I don't uphold my end of this covenantal relationship. And yet, in the midst of that, almost like God says in Exodus 14, look, you only need to be still. I'm going to fight for you. In the context of Abraham, he says, just fall asleep. And he makes him fall deep asleep. And then the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, which represent the presence of this God, march through the pieces of the animals. God is saying, I'm going to bless. I'm going to bring life. I am determined to do this even while you're dead asleep. 
And the reason Micah celebrates the forgiveness of God and celebrates the defeat of evil in his final oracle of salvation is he says, because this is the means by which God will be faithful to the word of life that he has spoken over his creation through the particularity of the call of Abraham, but always with the universality of blessing the nations. This is how God will do it. He will forgive. God will forgive to enable his covenant to go forward, his promises and purposes to go forward. Now, of course, all of this is pointing us to Jesus. To God actually entering in. And this is mind-blowing. We weren't just scared like the uh, Israelites with the superpower coming after them. And God told us to be still. We weren't just asleep like Abram in Genesis 15. And God says, look, I'm going to do this anyway. And we'll get in this as a sort of foretaste to coming in next week as we begin Holy Week. But we were with the crowds. Actively resisting. Actively rebelling. And crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And even in the midst, not just of lack of action or deep sleep, but of active rebellion and opposition and continuing to turn to this, the little idols that we think are going to bring us life and satisfaction and fullness. God is so amazing. His character is so Wonderful that he, in the midst of that, even in our active rejection, creates a pathway to pronounce a blessing of forgiveness over us, to take away our transgressions, to cast or to hurl all our sins into the depths of the sea, to defeat the power of the enemy of evil and sin and death. And to remain faithful to his promise to bring life. Did you catch Zechariah's song, which we read in Luke 1? Of the, the holy covenant that you have promised to Abraham to grant us, that we might be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us and serve him without fear. The whole point of this is God has been faithful to his word. Nothing was going to stop him from being faithful to his word. And his character, which is a character to forgive, enables us to participate in the blessing of life that God longs to bring about. It's a beautiful story. The book of Micah brings us to this incomparable character of a God who forgives sin. As a foretaste of the book of Scripture, the entire narrative, which points us to the great act of God. To forgive sin. God's heart is to give life. And not just a life that lasts for 49 years. Or 35 or 38 or 73 or 86. Our number will come. But his promise is to give life forever. And what enables us to have that life is his nature to forgive us for our opposition to him. 
And we see his radical commitment to life in the great lengths that he would go to enable it to be possible for us. I find it overwhelming that for God to keep his promise to give us life, he entered in to die. That for God to uphold his character as just and holy and full of steadfast love and forgiveness, he entered in to take upon himself the full weight and cost of your sin and of my sin. What an incredible God we serve. Who is like him? We struggle sometimes to think of sin as a really big deal. It's one of the great blind spots of the church today. We tend to think of sin as just an accident or a problem or maybe a small character defect. But sin is a huge deal. It's a weighty reality. And it renders all of us unfit for the life that God promises. Praise be to God. You, I don't know, but for each of you, if you wrestle with sin in your life, past sin, stuff that just continues to come back and bite at you and accuse you and make you feel miserable about who you are. All of those things are true at one level. But the amazing thing of our God is that he has spoken a word of forgiveness over you. He has enabled the reality of forgiveness over you. He has defeated the power of sin in you because his heart and his character are radically committed to you and to his creation to bring life. And what Mike is celebrating at the end of his book and what the entire scriptural narrative celebrates and what we see manifest for us at the cross of Jesus is this God's amazing love, committed love, caring love, costly, so costly love, to eradicate the sin inside of you and the sin outside of you in order that you might not live forever under condemnation. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? No one. Because in Christ you've been liberated. In Christ you've been forgiven. In Christ you've been brought in to the fullness of life. In Christ you are alive and free. We couldn't make this stuff up. This is God's story with God, the God of love and forgiveness at the heart of the story. Calling you and me to receive his radical forgiveness. What did Jesus say on the cross? If you didn't think God's heart was a heart to forgive, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This heart to forgive and to bring you in to the full, beautiful, rich life that God 
is making and preparing and that will one day be known in completeness when Jesus returns. We're invited into that out of our diseased bodies, out of our failed hopes, out of our crushed dreams, out of our constant shortcomings. We're invited to live free, whole, robust, holy, loving lives that are fueled by and filled by this gracious God that we serve. Who is like you? Amen.